0: Hello, everybody, and thanks for tuning in to the Funky Brain Podcast. Once again, my name is Dennis, and we're going to have some fun today. I have a very accomplished guest with us here today with a career-spanning six decades, but a veteran journalist, news anchor, author, member of the New York State Broadcasters Hall of Fame, and the recipient of seven prestigious Emmy Awards for journalistic achievement, which you can see behind him, Mr. Marvin Scott. How are you doing today, sir?
1: Hi, Dennis. Thanks for that introduction. Yeah, 60 years. I started the business when I was five years old. (laughs) It doesn't feel like 60, and I'm proud to say I'm still going strong because I still Love every single day I work. Every day is a new experience, it's an education,
0: and good to join you today. And hello to all of your podcast viewers. Yeah, thanks so much. That's really great. I know, and I remember if you're going when, when you said 60 years, it doesn't feel like 60 years, it goes by like that. And I took quote Mr. George Costanza, he said, Life's like a roll of toilet paper. The closer you get to the end, <laughs> the faster it goes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, I'm still enjoying it. Uh, every, every day is a new experience, and I get energized every time I do another story. There's no two days were ever alike. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly true.
0: So since you started at such a young age, and you've been doing this for 60 years, were you, was there like, you know, when you were like five years old, like you said, were you like, I want to be a newscaster? Or was there something that happened? Or were you inspired by a person, a place, a thing, or, or an event? Or what happened to get you there?
1: Give you the answer. It was a fire that ignited a career, literally, at the age of 14. Uh, I grew up in the Bronx and I was a photography buff. That was my hobby. And uh, one night, doing my homework, I heard fire engines racing by. I looked out the window and night had turned to day. Uh, There was this huge fire just down the block from where I lived. And I dashed out with my camera, raced to the scene took a couple of shots of flames belching from about a dozen windows of this catering hall. And matter of fact, I had one shot. The firefighters hadn't even set up their hoses and it was a kind of a limp hose <laughs> going into the building. And the New York uh, daily news was New York's picture newspaper. And they encouraged you to, you have a picture, give us a call. I gave them a call I said, I have this great shot. They said, okay, kid, bring it down. So I got on the subway, went down to the daily news. They gave me immediately a $2 messenger fee. And the next day, I was standing with my brother at the newsstand waiting for the Bulldog edition to come out, 7.30 p.m. And I have to tell you, it was probably one of the biggest highs of my life. I opened the newspaper, and there on the centerfold was a quarter of the centerfold for my photograph of his fire with a credit line, photo buy, and a story on page four, student finds picks pay. That was was something in itself getting exposed to that whole newspaper environment. But when I went back to my apartment building block away, all my neighbors were standing on the corner asking me, what happened? What happened? I was there. So here I was standing on the corner in the Bronx, telling my neighbors just what I knew, what I had seen at the fire, or what I knew at that moment. So you could say at the age of 14, that was my very first newscast. And, uh, but another sidebar to this thing, the very place where I went and received my $2 messenger fee, the building, the New York Daily News building, that's the building where Superman flew up. Years later, I came back, and I've been there for the past 40 years as an anchor reporter, the same building. Interesting. Uh, so it was that what inspired me. I, I got a rush from being there, where it was happening, and my photography continued where I did a lot of stuff and I sold it to local magazines and newspapers anytime I had an opportunity. And in school, I majored in communications, was on the newspaper, began with my photography, then I started dabbling in the writing. And my initial goal was to be a photographer for Life magazine. But as I was writing and as it evolved, Dennis, I, I, I wanted to get into communications in some form. In you know, My senior year at NYU, I became campus correspondent for the New York Herald Tribune, And there was a milestone there. I became the youngest reporter ever to get a byline in the New York Herald Tribune. And that was wonderful. And my first job was uh, fresh out of school in Charleston, West Virginia, WHTN-TV, chief cook and bottle washer. It was wonderful. I was hired in in Charleston for the, uh, the grand total of $70 a week. Back then, I guess 1960, that was not bad. And I, I got a chance to do everything. I shot my own stuff. I remember going to interview the governor, Governor Cecil Underwood. I would shoot my own stuff and I would set the camera up and I put a roll of film in. It was good for three minutes. I'd say, okay, Governor, you ready? Re- yeah, ready. I'd set the camera, roll, jump into the seat. I'd ask the Governor questions for three minutes. Then I had to go back to the studio and I had to process the stuff. Into the developer, into the stop, into the hypo. Then hanging out to dry, I put it on a drum of dowel sticks and a fan. (laughs) Then I had to edit it. Couldn't ask for better training. Those were the days, the vintage days of dealing with film before we progressed into video. I've watched kind of a metamorphosis of the whole industry, how it has changed technically. It is gone. Gone from a few channels and three network newscasts to 800 channels. Now you get any flavor you want on the air. It's incredible.
0: Yeah. So now de- things have definitely changed. So, so for somebody who is, you know, 14 with their camera and just wanting to get going or 16 years old now, like what advice can you give to them? The, that aspiring journalist, author, uh, photographer, newscaster, what, what would you tell them? I, I advise, and I, I was telling you about the small market
1: in Nebraska, Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. It was the 198th market out of 201 markets in the country. That's where you start. You get your opportunity. You work at a small station, as I did in Charleston, West Virginia. You get to do everything. You're not held to the union restrictions. You get your feet wet. Look for a cable news station. I have advised a couple of friends to do just that. And they have moved up. There's one friend. Uh, Clayton, who wanted to do sports. And he went to a station out somewhere out in the the Midwest, and he spent about a year and a half there. Then he moved from market 156 to market market 156 to market 84, and he's now looking to move to another market. That's how it evolves. There are opportunities uh, in New York City. uh, There are a number of reporters, anchors on the Uh, regular TV stations on network operated stations who came out of uh, cable operations, New York one, news 12, long Island. So it's an opportunity that that's where your best opportunity is today. And you have to let them know you're there. You can't be meager. I mean, I'll, I'll just share this story with you. When I started out, I was trying to get a job at a radio station in New York city. Of course I had no experience, but when I, Got my jobs in West Virginia, in Columbus, Ohio, Grand Rapids. I would look for opportunities. When there was a major story, I would call that radio station in New York and say, Hi, Marvin Scott here. Would you like a report on this disaster? I I did that with a mine disaster in in West Virginia. I called WNEW Radio. And then when I came back to visit my family in the city, I would always make it a point of going over to that station and seeing Lee Hanna, who was the news director. And as it progressed over the years, Lee Hanna remembered me. I got my first job back in New York because he recommended me to UPI Television News where I came back to New York as night assignment manager, working along with someone named Reese Schoenfeld and Burke Reinhart. Reese Schoenfeld was the person who suggested to uh, Ted Turner CNN. Reese became the president, initial president, uh, when I had an opportunity, when I left one station, they called me to join CNN back in 1980. And then Bert Reinhart subsequently became president of CNN. So you know something, it's a small, it's a revolving door. You got to be nice to the people while you're coming up so they don't forget you. And, and I guess my advice is don't let them forget you. If you believe enough in yourself and what you're capable of doing, pursue that dream and keep after the people. Let them know you're out there. Come up with ideas. I mean, I did one of the things. There was a program on, on NBC Radio called NBC Monitor. And when I was in West, no, I was working in uh, Grand Rapids. I became a regular contributor to NBC Monitor. I mean, there were things I remember. Uh, Adlai Stevenson had a thing at the UN. And something he said to Khrushchev, I will stay here until hell freezes over. Well, I saw a great story there. So I went to hell. It was frozen over. There was a place actually called Hell, Michigan. And I sat behind, beside a waterfall, interviewing someone, a frozen waterfall. a story about hell frozen over. It was a great little story. Bed pushers up somewhere in Lansing, Michigan. So that's my guidance to people. Think out of the box and don't let people forget you.
0: And follow that dream. Awesome advice. I mean, stay in front of people. Like nobody's gonna come to you while you're sitting on the couch playing Xbox, no. not letting you, people know you exist and knock on the door and be like, hey, you want this job? You want to get out there and do some stuff. You have to get out there and get in front of people. However however possible. And now there's so many different look at my what it says above my head, the impossible. You know, it's like get out not there. Possible. Yeah, there's so many different ways to reach people now. I mean, look at us. We're two thousand miles apart from each that's other and we're able to have a great talk here today. I'm sure you get this one all the time, but what was your favorite interview?
1: No, no question about it. It would have to be you with Martin Luther King. That, uh, that was an awesome moment. I did not realize back then what he would become and, and this symbol of the whole black uh, civil rights movement, uh, but it was back in 1966. Um, I was returning from an assignment at the Space Center uh, when James Meredith, he uh, broke down the color barrier at the University of Mississippi. Uh, he had launched a march through Mississippi called the March Against Fear. He was gunned down on the first day of the march. He did survive, but the big guns in the civil rights movement said, we're not going to let this march stop. They all came down to Memphis and gathered to visit him in a hospital, and they continued the march against fear, Uh, down to Jackson, Mississippi. Leading the group, Dr. Martin Luther King. Also, James Farmer, uh, Floyd McKissick, and the the head of the radical movement, Stokely Carmichael. So they all joined. Here are the big guns of the civil rights movement. And here was this kid, the first time, damn Yankee, in the deep south. I was forewarned to be careful down there. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I met King. My impression that King was a very tall man. In height, he was, I think, five, just under five six. But in stature, I have to tell you, he was so impressive. Just the way he dealt with people, the way he talked to people, he was an orator, you know, as evidenced by his uh, I Have a Dream speech. Uh, but I listened to that firsthand. Every night when they would bed down, They would have a little rally before, and everyone, every one of the leaders would have an opportunity to speak. And James Farmer, he I got to know Farmer, he was so eloquent and a great voice for the civil rights movement. And then Dr. King would get up, and he was a voice of moderation. Then Stokely Carmichael would get up, he was the firebrand. He would say, we need more black sheriffs, more black mayors, we need black power. That was the beginning of the black power movement. And uh, if I were ever to do a book on this, it would call, I would entitle it, Turning Points. The, the Turning Point, because it was a turning point. And but I watched Dr. King, every time he'd walk along the highway, it was very hot, it was June. And he would wave out the cotton fields and would say, come on children, come on children. And slowly, you see from the distance, these cotton farmers, they would been walking out. And every time everyone joined that march, it was another victory for the civil rights movement. I had a moment to sit with Dr. King. We had taken a break in the march. I had uh, gone across the road to a motel to file my radio report. Walked across the road. There was Dr. King sitting on a mound alongside the road. Dr. King, may I joined you? Oh, yeah. Sit down. And we we chatted for less than 10 minutes. And I guess during the conversation, he was echoing the sentiments he had expressed at the Washington March uh, a couple of years earlier of the I Have a Dream, the iconic I Have a Dream speech. And at one point I asked him, he had so many threats on his life. I said, Dr. King, you have a family. Why do you do this? Why do you put yourself out like this? There was a pregnant pause, he looked me in the eye, And he said for the children for the children and so many decades later later it's the children who have really benefited by all the toils of of his efforts in the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s it was most impressive watching him and the way he would talk to the protesters and the rednecks along the road it was an eye-opening experience for me uh seeing the way things were there was an incident where i couldn't file reports because uh, the pay phones along the way, the telephone booths, the connection was cut from the, uh, the phone. And I later found out it was the action of the uh, Ku Klux Klan trying to defer us from filing any reports. But there were so many moments in that march. There was a man whose name I remember, Armstead Phipps, 50-year-old sharecropper, who, uh, against his family's wishes, joined the march. He just had to do it. He had a heart condition. And he was out on the march, maybe two days, and he collapsed. He dropped dead of a heart attack. And uh, I remember they lifted his body and put it under an oak tree in the shade. Uh, And Dr. King, James Farmer, everyone else gathered over his body and recited the 23rd Psalm. It was such an emotional moment that I remember it so vividly to this day. Uh, Here was a man who was not known by anyone, but he spoke out with his life. For the civil rights movement. So that's a long response to say who was the most uh, incredible person I ever interviewed, and I say Dr. King, uh, but there were so many others. Uh, God, I could give you a long list, Dennis. Uh, We could go on for hours and I can give you a profile of of these people. Sophia Loren, Jerry Lewis, uh, Yasser Arafat, Golda Meir, uh, Presidents Ford, the list can go on and on. I I figure I've done, in the course of my my 60-year career, I have calculated maybe 30,000 interviews. It's not doing one-on-one. When you figure as a reporter, I'm out in the street each day working a story. Maybe I'm doing three, four interviews. Plus my weekly public affairs show, News Close-Up, I maybe have three guests. So add all that up over a period of years, yeah, 30,000. And I figure about 15,000 stories and still going, still counting.
0: It was really inspiring. I love that. And, you know, to piggyback on something you said earlier about Choose what it is that you want to do, and then go after it with with everything you've got and along those lines, you know a lot of people think oh i 'm going to get out of high school and i 'm going to go here there, and there 's that straight line, and that 's not the way it goes. you know you get out of school and you 're like i 'm going to go here, and it goes kind of like this, and right. then you end up all over the place and then you get there because there's like these uh, walls and these uh these bumps in the road, and what people call failures, so can you tell me? One of your failures that you had to hit along the way, and how you were able to overcome it and apply it to your life and get to where you are now.
1: I have been at WPIX now, as I say, this is my 40th year, and it has been a roller coaster ride. I have been to the top, I dropped down, came back up. I never gave up. Um, I joined in 1980, 1981, I was made anchor. Of a program called Midday Edition. It was a syndicated program. And then assignments change. You know, then I was off that program and I was anchoring the weekend news. Then I was doing the daily nightly news. Then I was off the anchor assignment. Yeah, it was a drop. It was a downside for me. At which point I said, hmm, you know, maybe I should leave. I stayed with it. So it was a downer emotionally. But I was there. You know, Larry King asked me on his program, you know, why did I ever pursue a network? Why did I stay in New York? And the answer is, there's nothing. New York is so eclectic. So much happens in New York. New York is a microcosm of the world, really, when you look at it. And it's so exciting. And a network, as I was a reporter, I'm sitting in the bullpen and waiting for that story to come through. I enjoyed being out there. As I said earlier, I get an adrenaline rush every time I'm doing a story. And I was out there, and it's been a life experience for the stories I've covered in New York, the people I have met. I've watched how things have changed over the years. I've watched the highs, the lows. I've been there through the blackouts and through the riots, and I've been there through 9-11, probably the toughest story I ever covered because it wasn't off in a far-off distance. It was in my own backyard. I've had some disappointments, uh, I, I had a disappointment I for 22 years. I, I was a contributing writer for Parade magazine, and I slipped up once and uh, lost that gig. Uh, that was a disappointment because I failed to alert the editor in time that I had learned the subject of one of my stories had just been indicted. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> but he learned about it before I did, but the story hadn't been planned yet. So, yeah, there have been some disappointments along the way, but the point was I never gave up. And I'm not giving up, because I still love what I do. And uh, a year ago, I wrote a book. Uh, let me show it to you. you see it? it a Reporter's Intrepid Journey. And it has been an intrepid journey. I've been encouraged for years by friends to write a book. So what I did, I selected 20 stories, I believe it was, of the more unique stories I've ever covered, and a dozen of the more memorable interviews. I put the whole book together, and uh it was a cathartic experience for me to let it out and, and in a way it was introspective because i found something in myself you know what they say about reporters were cold heartless people <laughs> sometimes they say that when, when you, you gotta cover some of these stories i found that it, in a way it changed me because i covered so many tragedies and I had to go to loved ones afterwards and of course I hate when I see an emotion picture where they portray a reporter going over to someone who just lost a loved one, and they ask the question, how did you feel when you learned that uh, your son died? <sighs> I hate that. Uh, I didn't quite go that route, but I had to go to loved ones often enough and, and, and ask difficult questions. But if we have the time, I'll share this one experience with you. There was a fire in Chester, New York, a nightclub. 22 people, if I recall correctly, were killed. I covered the story. It happened on a Saturday night. I covered the story on a Sunday morning. And I was out there looking for all kinds of angles I could get, being held back by police. And there was a, in the parking lot, I saw a woman just running around frantically. And I charged after her with my microphone, poking into her face. Why are you here? Stupid me. I should have known why she was there. And she was running hysterical. Why are you here? Dumb me asking. And suddenly, she stopped. She collapsed right in front of my camera. Hysterical. What happened was, she was there in the parking lot looking for her daughter's car. When she found her daughter's car was still in the lot, she knew at that very moment her daughter had to be among the dead. And here I was. I I hated myself, Dennis. I hated myself. And I... I remember going back and editing the piece and I said, please, get me out of that piece. I don't wanna be seen asking her this. I, I think went once I said, why are you here? And then when she collapsed, I kept that that to a minimum. I did, not, I did not milk the shot because I felt so guilty for the way I had handled it. And it taught me a lesson. Have a heart. You're a human being. Understand the grief that people are in. Common sense should have told me why she was there. And, and it really impacted me forever after when I approached someone today and I reluctantly go up to a door and there was a time someone drowned in a pool and I had to cover the story. And I said to my cameraman, I'm not going to the door that I watched my competitors going to the door. There were three other channels. going. I said, I don't want my editor asking me why I didn't go. So I had to join them. But when I, when I talk to someone who lost someone, I'll often first offer my condolences and say, I wish I weren't here as much as you wish I weren't here, and i will go on with the interview. I'll say I'd like to do a tribute to your loved one. There's something you would like to say. I'm much more delicate in handling it. And sometimes these people want to talk; they find it cathartic. I had a man once; his son was uh, was was shot in Harlem, and he recognized me from television he called me over and he wanted to talk and i was going to do it outside the funeral home he said no 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 he walked me inside and he wanted to talk beside his son's casket uh, so sometimes that that does happen but i i have become i've learned my lessons over the years and uh so i wrote the book i said it was cathartic but also introspective because i found out yeah i do have a heart and i I'm a person first, and you got to remember that. You got to be sensitive in certain situations and not be heartless and go out there. And, uh, a lot of lessons. It's all about education. Just so sort of, I tried to capture it in the book. I also wrote the book for a reason. I wanted my grandchildren to remember who Grandpa is, and when they, I dedicated to them and to my beautiful wife, uh, Lori. Who uh, she was my first line of defense. She would read my copy before I went to my uh, my editor. Uh, James, and uh, people ask me how long it takes take to write it. Unbelievable. Six months. How do I do it? I've kept notes on every major story I covered. So I went to the filing cabinet. I would dig out my old notes, some of them on yellowing pages. Someone wanted to know, how in the world do you remember the name of the driver in Phnom Penh, Cambodia? There he was on a yellowing page. So, uh, yeah, that's how I did it in six months. I brought them all back and I saved like headlines from newspapers and wire copy plus my own stories. Plus I have uh, video and, and audio tapes so of. I, I have an audio tape that I did with Martin Luther King back in 1966. So yeah, I retained that. I, I keep telling my wife, we've got to find a place, a school somewhere to, uh, that would, would welcome to have these videos and audios and uh, uh, to give it to someone rather than see it all get dumped when I'm gone. You no, know, there's a lot of history there.
0: Yeah. that. So cool. Well, first of all, I know all of that.
1: matter of fact, let me just, can I put a plug in? Please do, yeah. I mean, it's a fascinating book, and I have to say so myself. As I saw it, A Reporter's Intrepid Journey. It's on Amazon, and it's on Kindle, and it's kind of a book you don't have to read straight through, because you don't need chapter from, pick a chapter you want. But my daughter has picked out some chapters that, that are good enough that she could read to the kids before they go to bed. Here's what Grandpa wrote, and uh, so I get a kick out of it when... When the kids, they're they're seven and ten, and I look forward to sharing some of these stories with them. But when they come over here and they see some of these pictures on my wall, and they're learning about it in school, is that is that you and Martin Luther King? Is that you
0: and Bill Clinton? <laughs> and
1: I and I I I'm delight and I revel in telling you and sharing the stories with them.
0: Do you have a website? A way for people to find you there? Oh, uh, you can get
1: the at Facebook. I guess WPIX. Just put in Marvin Scott. Yeah. Uh, I'm not I'm not the African American politician from Indiana. <laughs> yeah, he's the first one who pops up as a Marvin Scott. Incredible when I got online and found out how many Marvin Scott's there are out in the world.
0: Well, everybody, I think you know by now, but we've been listening to Marvin Scott. Great, great conversation. Thank you, Dennis. I appreciate it, man. And thanks everybody for watching the Funky Brain podcast. Have a wonderful day today. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, Dennis here. Have you ever looked in the mirror and thought, I need to quit? Or maybe you've tried dozens or even hundreds of times on your own, but you can't do it. If you are sick and tired of being sick and tired, call me now for a free 20-minute consultation. We'll just talk for a little bit and we'll see if you don't feel better. And while we're all dealing with the COVID pandemic, I'm offering two free full 40-minute coaching sessions. We'll get you set up with the tools you need to become successful in recovery and sobriety. I know from experience having been sober since April 8th of 2003, that it is not easy, but you don't have to do it by yourself. I'm here to help, we'll do it together. If I can get clean and sober, anybody can. So call me right now, not tomorrow when you're sick and hungover again, right now. I'm here to help. Have a great day.